Blog Talk Radio. Hello, this is Peter Joseph, and you're listening to V Radio. Good evening, and welcome to this edition of V Radio. Tonight, my guest is once again Aaron, also known as Storm Clouds Gathering from YouTube. Um, we're going to be talking about the real motivations behind a lot of the wars in the Middle East, and obviously the recent invasion with uh, into Gaddafi's world of Libya. Um, we'll also be talking about some of our other uh, projects that we've been working on uh, behind the scenes. And um, thank you, everybody, for tuning in. And once again, thank you for being my guest, Aaron. Um, yeah, thank you for having me on. I've, oh, one second, I have just realized that I had a window open that is – I had your show open, so it was – Oh, I understand. Do your thing. In the meantime, I'll give my normal announcements. Um, thanks again, everybody, for tuning in today. Um be sure to visit my website, vradio.org, v-radio or v-radio.org. Uh, there you can find archives of more shows like this one. Click archives. Uh, good news, the original download is now once again available. In fact, it's even easier now. You don't have to go to the show page. You can download by going to the direct link of a show in question and clicking download. You don't have to go through iTunes anymore unless you want to. Um, so that trick has now been fixed uh, Enough of us complained to Blog Talk and told them if we're going to pay for the service, you can give us a download service. <laughs> that they changed their minds about that. Um, I also recently updated the links uh, page on my forums. I'm not on my forums actually, just on the main page. You click links, you're going to find a lot of links there, including a link to Aaron's YouTube channel, um, among other great things. Uh, coming up tomorrow. I'm going to have Ben Stewart from uh, Kaimatica Esoteric Agenda, the leader of the Hanged Man Project. Uh, we're going to be talking about his upcoming films that he's going to be working on. He's got two new documentaries coming out, the first of which is going to be about the free man on the land movement. Um, I haven't gotten a chance to talk to him about what the second one is going to be about. Um, but he is actually getting ready to go on a great trip to Australia. So for those of you who are fans um, out in Australia – uh, be sure that you have an opportunity to look into uh, where he's going to be. I'm working on the possibility of also getting his band, Hyrosonic, to play at the Zeitgeist Media Festival. I still have to get in touch with some people uh, to, to make that happen. Um, in addition to that, uh, work is still ongoing for the Troll film. Um, be sure to check out the uh, the page for that. You can find that also in the link section at vradio.org. Um, in addition to uh, the link sections for a lot of other uh, you know things that I've talked about on the show, I realized that I was lagging way behind, and some of the the, the previous links were no longer good. Um, so links to other uh, Zeitgeist-oriented material, other good radio shows, for example, uh, including Z Radio, which you can find their new talk show address there. Um, and uh, speaking of the forums. Uh, we're getting more and more people who are joining the forums now, and in light of the fact that it looks like Peter Joseph might actually be uh, shutting down the forums on the main global site, the V Radio forums are open to anybody. You don't have to be pro-Zeitgeist or pro-Venus Project. In fact, you can be anti-Zeitgeist. As long as you obey the rules and uh, avoid logical fallacy and personal attack, anybody is welcome. I haven't even had to ban anybody yet except for a couple of porn spammers, but you know you can't fault me on that. Um, and... Uh, so now, uh, are you ready to go? You got your window dealt with? Yeah, it was. I'd forgotten that I'd had a tab of um, your radio show open. It happens so. all the time. Happens all the time. At least we didn't hear ourselves echoing on the broadcast. So, Aaron, go ahead and reintroduce yourself to the audience, since you know you never know when there's a new person. Well, my name's Aaron Hawkins. Um, 
I guess people who have heard me on the show before um, probably remember me as coming on as kind of an opponent the first time. Um, we had that little uh, little spat between me and <laughs> me and the Zygeist movement. Um, it's a good way to good good way to get to know somebody is to get in a good fight with them. Something you know, not always the easiest way, but um, you know, since then we and me and you have been in contact and we've uh, you know had a lot of long conversations and I consider you a friend at this point. So yeah, that's mutual. Yeah, that's who I am. That's where we're where we're coming from. And now we're here to talk about this. Uh, the petrodollar thing and and how it's tied into the the global tendencies toward World War Three. Now I remember in a one of the documentaries that I have in the must see TV section of my website uh, is called Iraq Conspiracy. It's only about forty five minutes long. It was made in England, and one of the things that it revealed was that uh, Saddam Hussein was considering switching to the euro for all of his oil transactions, and that that likely was one of the reasons for motivations for the war. So I guess what we should do here is, first of all, let's explain to the listeners what a petrodollar is and the reason why the United States empire has been so powerful. Uh, you want to go ahead and give a crack at that? Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, it's one of those really important facts that are left out of every history book that I've ever read in school. Um, it's, and it's pretty amazing – that the that the powers that be have successfully kept that information away from the public, and you know even in colleges, people go through four years of college and they come out not understanding this, um, and there's, it's not an accident because this is the the key to how we're able to dominate the world. Um, you know, there's a lot of people when they uh, start looking at the United States financial situ- situation, especially libertarians, people, conservatives, people who um, Consider themselves awake, but they're they're kind of operating from traditional economic um, education, like but what they learn in college. They they talk about you know how we're printing this money and it's going to just put us into a hyperinflation, and they keep their their predictions keep having to get pushed farther and farther down the line, and you know I imagine they must be pretty confused. A lot of them just don't understand why we're not in hyperinflation. And the reason is, is our economy is not the same as the rest of the world's economies. That we don't operate in the same, under the same laws because we are we have the world reserve currency. Um, and in order to buy oil on the global market, you have to have dollars. And what that ends up creating is a situation where people have to send us products for that paper. Um, and it was the around in the 70s where we officially pulled the uh, the dollar off of the gold backing. So at that point, there was nothing behind it. There's nothing behind it at all. Um, but the fact that we are willing to knock down any country that tries to pull away from it is enough to hold it into place. But it's getting harder and harder. And that's what we're seeing right now is more and more countries are trying to get off of it. And we have, we're opened up in, I guess, what is it? Three official wars. I mean, it's hard to tell exactly how many wars we're in because we have Pakistan where we're doing drone attacks. Um, we have Iran where we're talking about at some point doing something, sanctions going on. We have, of course, Iraq, Afghanistan, Libya. 
Um, and then all sorts of proxy wars where we're tinkering with African countries and, and you know, Sy talks of Syria and all sorts of stuff. And it, it all ties into, you know, this, this buildup of a conflict towards, towards China, because China is, is in the process of trying to pull countries off of the petrodollar. Right. And it's, it, I guess it's, it's, it's something that people don't really realize the impact of until they really consider the, the impact that oil has. Um, I mean, it's like when you watch Collapse, uh, Rupert, uh, or, um, what was the fellow's name? I feel like an idiot for forgetting, but he, the, he was in Zeitgeist moving forward. Um, but he does work on um, the, the issue of collapse and in and, and regards to the oil, the peak oil issue. Um, and that's basically an interesting um, point that is that the fact that we have to – that everybody has to transfer their money into our currency to deal in oil, it gives us a huge amount of power. And if we were ever – if that were ever to change, I mean, especially like, you know, because the euro was doing a lot better than the dollar for a long time, it would just smack the – United States economy really hard uh, if we if it was over to the euro and then we come to what Gaddafi was apparently talking about was the gold dinar uh, which essentially would have been a gold based currency that all that he was going to try to encourage all of uh, the uh, Middle Eastern nations to deal in oil in and essentially we won't sell you oil unless you're going to give us gold uh, the balance of power would have been dramatic uh, dramatically changed in that instance. Yeah, I think the reason the European Union got involved is due to the fact that the euro is largely based on the dollar. Like, it's the dollar is the world reserve currency, so currencies will back their currency with the dollar. And the euro itself it has little to no backing in physical goods itself. So, if Libya were to pull something where it would force the rest of the world to use a an actual resource, an actual hard metal. Um, as as a backing, the euro would be, be hit just as hard as the dollar, and that's why the European nations, I believe, um, joined with the United States. And I, th I think we're going to see more of that because I, I think geopolitically, the euro and the, and the dollar are, are are united. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, we were getting to that point for sure. I mean, I remember when I was in Ireland. Spending dollars, you know, your money goes a lot faster than you think it would. Um, but, but overall, yeah, I agree that that's kind of all part of the same system. But when you think about the possibility that people are looking at now, I mean, because you deal with this a lot on your own channel, dealing with the people that are buying gold and buying silver, you know, like that's going to be their salvation, you know. But if if we really did get to that, especially if you think about it, if you know, because I've heard from some people that peak oil has already been reached and has probably been going on for a long time. I can't prove that for sure. But if that were the case, the Arab countries would recognize that after their oil runs out, they really have nothing. So if they started demanding uh, gold in exchange for the oil that they have left, um, that would, you know, especially eventually, because there's only so much oil in the world, you know, so much gold in the world. And a lot of the countries, particularly ours, uh, and, and countries that consume as much oil as ours, would be in just such a messed up position, um, you know, uh, because eventually we would have to, you know, give up our own gold reserves, and then they would have it, you know, because they're, they're, it, it would be an exchange, but they're the ones who have the product that we would have to be giving them gold for. So it's not yeah. like they'd be giving us any back. Yeah, and, and that's the thing. We're not a produ producing country anymore. What 
what we allows us to have this privileged position is is our our control over the petrodollar. And people don't think about that, but we have, we're seventy percent consumer based economy where everybody is just you know they're working at McDonald's and going and spending their money at at Walmart, and all of that goes away. All of that whole cycle of of you know people in the consumption trade that that can only be supported when there's uh, it can only be supported naturally when there's a production base in inside of the country which is exporting something that other countries want. What we're exporting is paper, and what's really really going to be hard emotionally, I think, for most people to deal with, is that we're the only ones who can stop this without World War III, the American people, because we're the ones who benefit from it. Um, but the reason it's probably not going to happen is because it would put us through so much suffering. You know, it would be one of the hardest things we would have lived through in our lifetimes. But I honestly think that would be less painful than doing it the hard way and going through a world war. Because the rest of the world is not going to take it very much longer. It's very clear that they're getting tired of it. And if if we don't let them get off of it, they're going to take it, you know, with force. And that's not going to be pretty. No, it's not. And I, I think that's probably a large part of the reason why, you know, you see China making these extreme changes, uh, like developing their own stealth fighter craft, which is one of the only things that we really had as an advantage over anyone else. Like Russia can make jets that are as maneuverable, if not more maneuverable than ours, but stealth was kind of something that we only had, and now they're working on it. Um, and especially since we have managed to anger so many countries on this planet, it's only a matter of time before, you know, uh, we have enough you know, military-capable countries that say, uh, you're done, you know, and, and then we're going to be in a bad position, especially since, uh, I mean, we could, in theory, uh, switch over to manufacturing again like we did in the wars previously, but our entire economy is based on these other countries. Uh, in fact, even a lot of our military hardware is coming from other countries. And with all of our adventurism and the way we kind of spit in the face of other countries, it's just a matter of time before they get sick of us, like you said. And I, I hate to say it, but it's one of the things I think uh, – I, I remember either seeing it in your video, one of your videos, or talking to you about it, was the moment that I truly grasped what was going on with United States foreign policy was that uh, we're the bad guys. You know, we are the evil empire. It's and it it terrifies me. Actually, I just watched a a film called uh, Sophie Scholl: The Final Days about a group of activists in Germany uh, called the White Rose who were trying to get everybody to uprise against Hitler because of the things he was doing to destroy their country and the stuff that she went through. I mean, eventually she gets you know uh, put to death for treason, but all they did was distribute some flyers, you know, mm-hmm. and as I, I watch as our, our government in the United States becomes more, you know, slowly becomes more and more fascist. Um, and I, I mean, it's interesting. I, I'm not really sure what's going to come up with this next election, because at least on the panel for the Republican Party, I, I was kind of surprised to see not a single pro-war candidate among them. That's probably just political, but um, it, really, but I, like what, about Mitt Rom- what about Mitt Romney? He wasn't well. He wasn't in the uh, he wasn't in the um, debates. Surprisingly, huh. uh, it was Ron Paul, uh, Herman Cain, and a couple of other governors that I've never seen before. I, the whole thing was kind of bizarre because 
I was like, who are all these people? Ron Paul was the only guy I had ever recognized other than, uh, oh, well, the former governor of Arizona who's very liberal on uh, drug rights was up there. And it was interesting to hear from him again. But um, it was still, it was just, it was kind of bizarre. No Palin, no Romney, you know, just a bunch of Republicans I'd never heard of before and Ron Paul. Um, it was funny, too, because he, Ron Paul clearly won the debate and uh, Fox News redid the poll three times. <laughs> I'm hoping that they'd get a different result. Um, but uh, in any case, when we come back to this. Uh, so we talk about we, we've been talking about, you know, like the motivations and what will happen in an inevitable World War Three. I think the United States has kind of gotten too used to its ability to bully other people. We still have the largest military overall. But if our economy falls out from under us, you know, who's to say how long that will, you know, continue to be true? Well, it's, it's a very similar situation to Rome, in that Rome enslaved the people of the world and it, within its empire by with the resources that it took from them. You know, it took their money and turned around and paid armies to suppress them, to keep them oppressed, um, and. The rest of the world is in a very similar situation, and it's, it's a very hard situation to break free from. And you know, the American people are in that situation as well. Uh, we pay for our own oppression. You know, we pay to have the, the you know the right to be slave labor <clears throat> for the federal government. And it's 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 a very difficult situation to break out of when you have a monetary uh, tyranny um, coupled with a military tyranny. And that's why situations like that usually end in bloodshed because they don't leave you any option. We're not leaving. We're not leaving the, the world any option. And you know, it, I'm actually really surprised how cool-headed China has been, and China and Russia, because we've been toppling their trading par- partners. I mean, this thing in Libya, it, it's like a, it's like a sucker punch. I mean, it, it would be as if. You know, you had been buying honey from a guy um, every week, and then one day you, one of your enemies finds out that you're buying honey from him. He goes and decides to just burn that guy's farm and um, beat the crap out of him and then leave a note for you. You know, it's like, you know, it's, it's almost as if the United States wants China to lose it. I, I just, I can't even understand how they're keeping calm, but it makes me feel that they're biding their time. Well, yeah, and that's when you think about it. That's that's a very sound strategy because although they have a great you know population that they could put you know guns in the hands of, uh, the face of war has changed a great deal, um, and they're just now getting to the technological capability that they would need to be able to challenge us. Um, uh, I mean, it's a good thing that Russia and China are not working together anymore because, uh, as I was saying earlier, Russian jets were already more maneuverable than the Raptor that we're using. Um, and uh, the stealth technology would have been all they needed uh, to to gain uh, air, air equality anyway. I don't know about superiority, um, but uh, in the way the situation that we're in now, because of the way that the economy in China is slowly growing and ours is slowly declining, it's it's only a matter of time. I mean, they're building huge manufacturing over there, and inevitably. Uh, once they, because they have like a, a dedicated workforce that essentially they can push around, because the Chinese worker is accustomed to the idea of 
essentially working in sub-slave conditions for, you know, over many generations of being forced to do so, you know, if they ever went to war, they would be a huge producer. You know, they would be, their ability to pop out tanks and planes would be amazing. Um, and it would take a while for the United States to get back to that point. Uh, we, we have a lot of factories just sit around rotting. You know, and I don't think we would be able to pull it off in the circumstances because the fact that so much of our daily necessities are coming from other countries, particularly China. Uh, you know, just China cutting us off from the manufacturing that they're doing for us right now would t- send us into a tailspin. Just that in itself. I mean, that would be the first blow, would be the fact that we wouldn't be able to buy anything. <laughs> and if a world war broke out in that in that level, I mean, it would it would have to be accompanied by an outright rejection of the dollar by a large block of countries. So the economic impact would be widespread. Uh, we would be facing situations where we would be having shortages of lots and lots and lots of you know, necessities in the country. And I, I think that would set off a lot of unrest. So I don't think we would be in a, any position whatsoever to, to rebuild because we wouldn't have, one, the unity, the, in, the internal stability, uh, or the, the stable trading situation because suddenly we've just pulled the rug out from under everything. So I... I don't know. I I don't think we would come out ahead in that. Yeah, it would be it would be a serious. I, I it's like what are they thinking? I mean, because they've got to have people, smart people in think tanks, sitting around, you know, thinking about this stuff. I mean, the neoconservatives are a conquering mentality. So uh, as a result, um, you know, they they the Bush people probably had some kind of plan to deal with this. You know, it just—it's like you said. It's such a—it's such a stupid thing to do because we know that China is the only other is is an emerging superpower. Is not exactly friendly to us. So why would we essentially? Because that's what we're doing now is we're handing them our fortune. Uh, we're you know we borrow a lot of money from them to keep our economy running. You know, it just—it's like think about if we took this back, say twenty, thirty years back to the Cold War. You know, the whole idea would be so preposterous, we'd never do it. It was like, you got to be kidding me. We're going to borrow money from the Soviet Union and China to keep our economy running? And we're going to let them manufacture all of our goods? That's just insane, you know. Um, and we're not thinking like that. I, that's why it almost seems like there's there's either an arrogance or there's just, I mean, or there's something that we have that maybe the intelligence communities know about that the, the average person doesn't. Because I just cannot fathom what could be going on in the the darker reaches of the government to ever justify this? I mean, unless they don't care. I mean, unless they're planning on just nuking us all and retiring to their bunkers. The scary thing that I came to several months ago, and I I don't put out this this mentality a lot. It's it's something I I kind of pull away from in general because – Usually it's not productive, but sometimes when I'm looking at this, you know, there's so much that really appears to be willful, and these these actions that they're taking, it it looks like a suicide in in, in the progress. And the only thing that makes sense to me is that they want to wipe the slate clean. They want to hit the reset button so that they can restructure things from the from that 
blank slate kind of position. And the only way that that would really happen would be on a, in a full-out nuclear war. And that is very scary to me. It terrifies the hell out of me, too. And that's because I just <laughs> – there has to be an end. You know, I mean, as much as – I mean, we talk about it all the time. Like, you, you have a great video series. I haven't had a chance to finish it but about why the monetary collapse is inevitable. You know, Ron Paul and his people have been talking about the same thing, Peter Schiff, you know, about how we can't inevitably think that these countries are just going to let us continue to go into debt while we all live, you know, in like fourth or fifth world conditions and they're all living in, you know, first through third. You know, it, the amount of hatred that we're inciting around the planet, you know, I'm surprised they haven't dumped us already unless, as you said, they're they're biding their time, you know, um, but uh, – Overall, when you, when we talk about that, you know, the, the nuclear war issue, that's when uh, I try to – it's like I'm not even going off of anything now other than my own strategic mind. I'm not quoting Alex Jones. I'm not, you know, uh, getting into any kind of conspiratorial stuff. I'm, you know, I'm not reading off of any blogs. I'm just trying to put together my own strategic mind and try to imagine what could ever be beneficial about the direction that we're taking. I mean, what could possibly be the plan – that they would have. I mean, other than, I mean, unless they think that they're just going to default on all these debts if they switch to the Amero. You know, well, that's that's the thing. That's that's why I come back to that conclusion because to me it looks like this that they they've got themselves in such a situation financially that they know that if things resolve peacefully, we're going to be an impoverished nation low on on the power level. You know, we're going to have to like answer to a bunch of other much more powerful countries. We're not going to be able to throw our weight around. And the people who are running this country have gotten very used to just throwing their weight around. And I think they look at it and, and have this kind of like Hail Mary idea. What if we just you know knock out like 50 to 60 percent of the population and, you know, you know, use the resources that we've accumulated because the government has been doing very strange things, you know, building deep underground bunkers and um, setting up the, the, ne the necessary infrastructure to basically withstand a nuclear war. Um, they're in the position to cause a nuclear war and they're preparing for it. So it's kind of a, those are dangerous signs. If, if, they brought the world to a great enough level of chaos and destruction for a short period of time, and if they had you know, enough of the resources stockpiled and they were able to survive themselves, maybe they feel that they can come out, come out, of, out from underground, you know, put down everybody who's you know, been knocked back to the Stone Age, you know, put them into check, and then you know, come back and be the, the feudal lords. Well, yeah, that's another thing that kind of plays into that is uh, I think I might have shown you the statistics. The uh, the sale of doomsday bunkers is up like 500% or some crazy number. Like hmm. the amount of these bunkers that are being sold. Once again, you know, that's all verifiable. You can look that up yourself, folks. Once again, I'm not trying to pull a conspiracy theory or fear mongering out of here. But it's the people, I mean, these things are extremely expensive. And when you see a trend like that, it makes you wonder, you know, do they know what's up? You know, is there some kind of, you know, thing going on behind the scenes here that we're not aware of? Or, you know, or is it just a trend that for some reason a bunch of people have decided to once again start buying doomsday bunkers? 
you know, it just that's why I, I worry about it, especially because the other thing about the nuclear war thing that I just think is totally insane. I, you know, I, I bought this game recently. <laughs> And I'm ashamed of it, and at the same time, I, I am glad I did it, because it's essentially a nuclear war simulation game. And there are no, there is no way to win. There, there's a way to lose less than other people. That's the kind of statistics you're looking at. And it makes the Earth uninhabitable, you know, for just so long. It's it just, it's, I don't understand what they could possibly be thinking, how this could ever be viable. And and you start to wonder yourself, you know, the fact that anybody ever consciously thought that this was going to be a way to go about making war, you know, I just, it's so terrifying that, you know, that, that that's why I, you know, it, it, they really have to have something going on underground, you know, safe enough away that they recognize that that's, that that's what needs to be done, that, you know, that they, that that's their plan because, the rest of the world is not going to just let us default and switch to the Amero without a fight. I, I don't see that happening. And that's why I found it was kind of funny, actually, when that recent uh, – that the new Red Dawn film was being made and is now currently uh, – unfortunately, the company that made it is bankrupt. But in that – so therefore, it, it'll be out, but it was supposed to be released actually in the spring this year. Uh, but actually, no, winter last year, if I remember right. Um, but it will be out, but the company went bankrupt. It's ready to go. Um, they filmed a lot of it in Detroit, which was why the, the YouTubes of them doing that was kind of creepy for me because you see you know, raw footage of a tank rolling down streets that I've been in here in Detroit. But uh, it was about China invading the United States, um, apparently over that very same thing, that the, basically we owe them a lot of money. We're not paying them. Um, I don't know where we would ever get the money back. You know, um, I mean, you've you've contemplated more about the financial collapse than I have. If you want to give commentary on that, yeah, I mean, getting the money back is kind of a, it's an oxymoron because, I mean, the money's nothing, and it's it's debt. <laughs> the money is debt, and there, as long as we have this system, the way that our money is set up, it will always lead back to this kind of situation. Uh, you know, so. You know, I, I'm sure there's there's people in power who who would like to, you know, have the United States basically be merged into a larger, you know, super state like the Euro, like the European Union. Um, basically, if 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 they could manage to convince, you know, China that now the United States has been put down into just a member state of this larger group, I mean, that's what the powers that be that I've seen talking about it seem to want, you know, I've listened to George Soros talking about it and this is, now he's a major player, not to say that he's the one running everything, but you can't ignore a guy with billions upon billions of dollars who, you know, he got his reputation by actually taking down the, the British pound. Um, he, you know, he bet against the British pound and, and his, his dealings were actually known to be the, the cause for the British pounds decline. Um, so you can't ignore when someone like that starts talking on those terms. You know, he was basically saying that you know he would like to see China take a you know a greater role in this new world order. And you know a lot of people call that conspiratorial, but I mean, or they, what they'll say is that, that it's conspiracy theory. And a lot of times people mix that word up. They'll say you know conspiracy is if that's something that's imaginary. But you know there, conspiracies do exist. Conspiracy to conspiring to 
you know, commit a crime is a real charge that you can be charged with in, in a court of law. And, you know, it, all it is is two people getting together and agreeing to do something illegal. Uh, the, this, this new world order that, that, that keeps coming up is, is really just a group of people who are trying to gain more power, you know, trying to maintain control of the existing power structure. And if they can't control it, you know, if, with existing means, find a way to, to change the situation. And they're not having very much luck getting China interested. You know, they've, they seem to be floundering on that level. I've, I've seen them, you know, they bring in the G20 and they try to get China interested and that fell apart. I mean, they tried the, um, what was that? The, it wasn't the Kyoto, the, um, the one about the, the climate change. Mm-hmm. They tried to bring in China to get them to, to sign these treaties. China, China turned them away. And basically they've been trying through all the normal economic means and China seems to be a lot smarter than, than they were counting on. Well, I mean, at this point, what do they need? You know, they're becoming the new manufacturing giant. And I think that's uh, that's an element that I don't believe. That's another thing about, you know, when we go back to, you know, the original comment about petrodollars, it's also just the fact that we used to be a manufacturing country. Used, we, you know, people used to be buying our products. They, yeah. And I, to, people don't understand that, and they don't really think of the, the, the larger implications of that. But that's why things like, uh, you know, outsourcing and all that have a huge impact on our local economy in a way that people do not get. They they don't understand that what they're doing is essentially destroying their own economy. It's like, you know, you're on a lifeboat, you know, that's made out of cheese. So you decide to start eating the cheese because you're hungry. <laughs> and meanwhile, you're eating your lifeboat. You know, it's it's the same thing. Um, and, and people don't recognize that uh, the fact that we're not a, you know, uh, a manufacturing giant, the fact that essentially now we're just trading fake, you know, uh, credit back and forth to keep the economy going, you know, in other countries and in our own. Uh, but it's all borrowed time. It, yeah. we, we, we can't do that forever. It, and, and there's no solution. That's why I keep coming back to it. I'm like, you know, no, Alex Jones, let's just think about this for a second. Where the hell are we going to get the money to pay back China? Where would it come from? We don't make anything anymore. We don't have all the oil anymore. So what would we do? Where would the money come from? What is the end game there? Well, that's the thing that's that's so ironic about this whole thing is that we could just print the money and just give it back. The problem is we have the Federal Reserve, which is interested in charging interest and basically only creating money that's generated out of debt. And it, there has been many times in history where money was created as needed to, you know, make things get, you know, infrastructure built, that kind of thing. And it was, you know, it was cycled back through, um, you know, the taxes and stuff like that. And that, I know that there's taxes, taxation, and all that is is not ideal in a lot of a lot of ways. And who's who's to say that there weren't problems inherent in that system as well? But we have an even more corrupted system where we have these bankers who are basically skimming off the top, you know, and that's where the the real problem comes in is is that we've created this money that which is dead, and and Peter Joseph talks about that too. It's just it's the inherent inherent problem with our current money. Um, we would have to fundamentally restructure our, our financial system in order to change that. 
but that would mean basically slapping those other countries which have our debt in the face, and China's the largest holder of that debt. So it would right. be essentially an act of war, but it's not certain that they would react with war. I mean, it seems more like we're pushing towards a hot war ourselves. You know, it, it's actually perplexing to me because I don't think China would attack us if we just wrote off the debt. So why don't we do that? You know, they they don't want to kill millions of people and, and you know, end up with a nuclear war on their soil. And, you know, everyone knows that we can't pay. So, you know, we should just accept it and just write it off. Money is nothing anyway. Well, that's why it makes me wonder why China would give us the damn money in the first place, although I've been told that they continue to do that because the cycle is, is to their benefit at this point. Extending us lines of credit when as we continually shut down our own infrastructure in favor of buying things from them, it's essentially, when you think about it, it is a financial means of destroying the United States uh, economically and then eventually, therefore, Militarily, um, what we owe, what we owe them is products because mm-hmm. the money itself is nothing. It's it's just debt. So right. and and that debt can just be written off and it wouldn't exist. So yeah, in in a way you're right that they put themselves in a situation where they're owning all the infrastructure. And if there ever was a war, they would have a, a very good chance of winning in the long term. I don't. I think in the short term, the United States would you know have some pretty fancy fireworks. I mean, they've had a lot of experience. In war, they we've been in war for what I don't even know how many years now. It's it's, it's been like ten years. Yeah, it's, it's a, we, we've been practicing. The soldiers are very well trained at this point. Um, we have a lot more experience in war than than any other country in the world. I can't even think of the last time China was involved in a major conflict. Yeah, and that's not necessarily to their favor in, in for some things. But, you know, if you look at what happened in, in Germany, and one of the, the most fascinating books to read, uh, I recommend it to people, is um, the Rommel Papers, because that was looking through the eyes of Erwin Rommel, which is one of the greatest, one of the greatest military tacticians who ever existed. And mm-hmm. it's through his own papers, his own writings. And he talks about, you know, the situation. He, he was in the initial invasion of uh, France, and... And he was there as it started to degrade. And what's what's interesting is, you know, you saw how Germany came in just with this blitzkrieg and just knocked through the defenses of, of France, and it just blew, took everyone by surprise, blew everyone away. Um, but it was in the long term where production started to really kick in, and that was where the United States um, really show, had showed showed themselves as, as a as a superpower. And Rommel saw it coming. Many, many, many years before um, the uh, the German high command did, I mean, he saw what was happening. He saw how um, the British and the um, American well, – it wasn't necessarily the Americans in, involved in, in the early stages, but he saw how American tanks and American weaponry was getting to um, the, the, the enemy and how production was influencing things. He wasn't getting the production he needed. And in, in the end, it was production which which broke Germany's back because they weren't able to keep up. And you know, if if a full out war broke out, it, it would be in the long term, China would win. I think. 
Yeah, that's, you know, provided that we take all nukes off the table somehow, um, you know, for sure. Uh, now, somebody here is suggesting, did you notice for the last year things keep turning up on Russia today every month, if not week, about the Russians negotiating against the U.S. and the U.K. trying to set up an anti-nuclear missile batteries in Eastern Europe? That's the first I've heard of it, but I don't watch Russia Today all the time. Have you heard anything about that? I've I've watched some of that. Yeah, um, it's hard to follow the the actual status of things because you know you hear one day that that Obama is you know pushing to put in a um, a set of uh, um, anti uh, anti missile defense system. In this country, and then they'll say that they changed their mind, and then you'll find out find out that they're, you know, attempting to put it in another country, uh, and they don't make it very public. They don't make it as like a full uh, media event. Um, but yeah, Russia has been trying to work against that because they understand what that means. I mean, having a um, uh, the United States have an anti missile system on their borders would essentially. Um, lock them down, prevent them from being able to defend themselves. That's right. You know, and it's, <laughs> you keep thinking about that, you know, anti-missile system, and it is, the uh, the power of a single nuclear weapon is so ridiculous, you know, just immense. You know, in, in that video game I was talking about, the casualties from one bomb are always calculated in the millions. Millions, millions, you know, millions of people <laughs> It's like I feel like I have to say millions a million times for people to really grasp what I'm talking about. You know, it reminds me of a Patty Shannon from uh, Capitalism and Other Kids Stuff was talking about the number of children who die from poverty. And he said, since large numbers don't mean everything, mean anything to most people, that would be like, you know, if say, for example, a jumbo jet full of five-year-old children crashed into a mountain, that would be big news. Now imagine the jumbo jet was doing that every hour on the hour for say three months, <laughs> you know, and then the, you know his, the imagery that he used, you know, really played together, you know, and I just it's, it's once again it's amazing to me that uh, anybody feels that there's a strategy with this. I mean, it's like we're looking at the Fukushima stuff now. They're passed around all these videos, and I don't I don't know if they're real, but of just the amount of fallout that's supposed to be flying over the United States in the mm -hmm. next week or so. You know, we don't even know the full impact of that yet. And I just, that's from a freaking nuclear reactor. You know, the the weather forecast for that is, you know, is potentially extremely hazardous. And that's from non-intentional fallout. You know, I just... The fallout actually can be worse from... from yeah. Like the, the equivalent, from what last time I had heard, um, it was the equivalent of um, 2,000 nuclear bombs going off the, the Fukushima mm -hmm. thing. I mean, it was it was 154 trillion becquerels of radiation per month that that, that um, Japan admitted is coming out. It was they had to revise their numbers. And one thing I would mention about the whole nuclear buildup, which um, it's it's not theoretical, but it's not completely confirmed. We had that issue in um, California this I don't know a couple months ago, where a missile was fired right off the coast. Um, and at first, you know, it got onto the news, and people said, "What's well, this missile?" And you know, it was obviously a missile going straight up in the air. United States government denied any involvement, and then later they came out and said that it was actually an airplane. 
even though there have been military analysts who looked at it and said, well, it's not a Tomahawk missile, but it's definitely a missile. Um, and it just came straight out of the ocean. Uh, I interpret that as a warning from China that, hey, we can get in through your defense system, you can't detect us, and we can fire off a missile. So be careful. Don't mess with us. You know, that, that's a way of sending the message without actually, you know, killing a bunch of people. Um, I, you can only hope that the powers that be actually heard that message, but the way that they're acting doesn't doesn't make that seem to be the case. It is, yeah. It it's you. You know, it wouldn't be the first time that I that I've had those feelings. Like I had you watch uh, my favorite uh, documentary about Iraq, uh, No End in Sight, where mm, it becomes yeah. extremely clear nobody could be this stupid. That's mm-hmm. what the, the mistakes were so bad that it can't have been an accident. You know, it's like uh, if a, a sixth grader could have figured out how to do it better. And yes, there are stupid people in government, absolutely. But some of the decisions that were made in Iraq. Well, okay. the one of disbanding the army. Right. That was, I mean, that, that one, they're right now like attempting to rebuild the army when they had the chance at the very beginning to just have the army. They had the the entire Iraqi military was basically show, you know showing up and saying, "Hey, we're ready to re- reform under a new government." And they were disbanded. And worse than that, they were persecuted, made it made so that they couldn't get jobs. Um it was almost a guaranteed way to create an uprising. And I guess there's a number of explanations. I mean, you could say that they didn't want the country to rebuild and, and form into a stable government that they couldn't control too quickly, or that there was, you know, too much money to be made um, in the war, or they wanted to keep the region um, militarized for the final conflict. Um, that, to me, is the the explanation that makes the most sense because if you look at the way World War II came came to, head, to the head, um, there was a lot of positioning around. Um, the countries that uh, held the resources. And at that time, those countries weren't really forces to be reckoned with. I mean, they were moving through Africa and the Arab countries um, while these countries were basically on camelback. And they didn't even have to talk to the governments. They didn't have to get permission to move through their tanks. They just disregarded them. They just treated them as if they were non-issues. And the people were just basically irrelevant. If you look at the way the war was played, they just walked through any country they wanted to. And they basically, it was they basically their war playground. But things have changed. It's a lot harder to do that now. Now you would have to ask permission for this Arab country to, to come in to have your, your planes land to, to bring your tanks in. Um, but if they keep the area basically under martial law, um, under U.S. military control, then um, they would still have the ability to move through that region. And, and that region is very important. It's, it's got oil. It's right on the border of Iran. It's, it, it gives you a foothold in the east. And if there was a war between China and Russia and, and the United States, it would be an essential region to control. Yep. And that's, uh, it's amazing to me how people don't think about things in this bigger picture issue, you know, in, in, the, in the way that you, know, that you and I are talking about. And you and I have had a lot of conversations like this. There are so many people who don't even consider any of this stuff, you know. Uh, the idea doesn't even uh, come across to them, and it's just it's 
it, it's unfortunate that you know, but it, and it also that is also to the benefit as we've always been over that the subject of sheeple show that I did, which is my favorite B radio ever, um, where they play the recordings of those people who like worship Sarah Palin and asking them what they liked about her foreign policy and they couldn't even answer what her foreign policy was or her economic policy and they didn't know anything about her economic policies but they wanted her to be president you know it's like we just basically the the the, the republic model that we have as a form of government in the United States essentially is to pick someone else to do all of our thinking for us so that we can go watch American Idol you know and yeah. It was designed very, that way from the beginning. But go ahead. It is very vulnerable to the cult's personality, which is what we end up having. Because uh, basically, if, if you get in this position of, or in this, this um, scenario of picking the, the person that you're going to have run the show, um, basically it's just a popularity contest. Because you, you can you can get a population to a, to a dumbed down state to where they don't ask the right questions. And as long as you control the media, then they don't need to worry about answering those questions because it's never going to come up. So, yeah, it's, it's uh, this current form of government is essentially just, it's just, uh, it's basically like American Idol politics. Right. And that's, that's actually what the subject of Sheeple Show exposed beyond a doubt, you know, like, cause the, and the first part was about Sarah Palin. The second part was actually I played a video from back in my Ron Paul days called Why Ron Paul Did Not Win the Florida Primary. And it's just a guy walking around a Florida beach asking people who they were going to vote for and why. And uh, there was, you know, for example, you know, there was an African-American fellow who was going to vote for Barack Obama, which, you know, I have no problem with that, obviously, as I put in there. But the fact is, though, is, is that it became extremely evident why he was doing it, because he didn't have any policy that he liked that Barack Obama held. He didn't have any information. He just said, I like change, you know, <laughs> and I just was like change. I've re-listened to that show so many times because it just is so astounding to listen to, you know, somebody who's got a driver's license and, you know, has a job, probably owns his own house. You know, when, when he just says, I like the idea of change, I need change. And I'm like, you know, but you don't know what he's going to change it to. You know, he yeah. could be changing it to fascism. Yeah, Hitler brought change. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Some serious change you got there, you know, and just a lot of the extremely superficial decision making. Like there was another girl who said she was going to vote for Barack because he was hot. You know, uh, there were people who said they wouldn't vote for Hillary because she was a bitch, which I don't like Hillary either, but that's not a qualifier for, you know, uh, a serious decision like running the country. Right. You know, and in, in many cases, there were people who didn't even know the, the candidates' names, you know, correctly. Like one of them said, I'm voting for Hilton. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I just was like, yeah. But you, for those of you who haven't heard that show, uh, you can find it in my archives, and it's called On the Subject of Sheeple. Um, and it really gets into this effect that we're talking about because it just – I, you know, we all know that the, the average person – is not informed, but this is a matter of extreme willful ignorance, like George Carlin would say. We'll remain willfully ignorant, you know. And uh, we we talk about um, the fact that the the system was created that way, which actually kind of gets us into that 
that other thing that you and I are working on about the possibility of getting together groups of people who want to write a constitution for how a federation could interact after a collapse. Um, and in a government model that is the republic, especially as we have it currently, it's just a system for plutocracy. You can't get in unless you're rich. Yeah. I, I, mean, I suppose there could be some form of representational government, like some kind of council or or some kind of modified republic in some circumstance if there was very clear forethought about media and um, advertising and all these kinds of things. I mean, as long as advertising can be purchased, as long as media is um, has, is limited access and is actually you know a monopoly. I mean, they're they're having competition with the internet right now, but you know everybody knows that, you know it's easier to turn on a television and there's all this you know money thrown at it and. You know, you you really can't compete with that kind of power unless you have money. And yeah, it's inherently set up so that it's, it can easily be corrupted. Um, and you know, me, me and you have been talking about this, and a number of us have been talking about this separately. Um, just how the the U.S. Constitution was written with inherent flaws. I mean, it, people talk about you know, it would be unconstitutional for American soldiers to be used against the people. You know, to put down rebellions or something like that. But if you actually read the Constitution, it outright says that troops could be used to put down rebellions. That's the like it, it says it right there in right. the in the text. So you know, a lot of people don't even read the Constitution. They don't have no idea what's really in it. Um, you know, I only recently read it. I you know, everybody's read the First Amendment. Everybody's read the Second Amendment. You know, the Fourth Amendment, the the Tenth Amendment, the key ones. And some people haven't even read those, but um, people tend to focus on that and then not read the rest. And you read the rest and you go, well, no wonder we got in this situation. It's right there. Um, yeah, you know. And there's all sorts of contradictions that were allowed to be written in. You right. know, like the, the fact that there wasn't supposed to be any direct tax on on the citizenry. And then, you know, later amendments said, yes, we can actually put a direct tax on anything. Um so yeah, we're going we're gonna to be faced with a situation where we're going to have to choose how we rebuild. Um, and so the project that we've been uh, working on, mostly it's going to be me, you know, trying to do the programming on the, on the time that I have, which is greatly divided. I was actually working on it today, though. Um, is the write the constitution dot com and don't go to that site right now. <laughs> I, I had I had to actually take it down because I like. Because we were having spammers come on there, and I, I'm not in the position. I hadn't set up security and everything that I wanted. I didn't want them to be putting out um, porn spam, you know, while I'm working on them on my local computer. But <laughs> yeah. so, it, who, who knows exactly how long it'll take to get up? But um, it is in the works. You know, and the funny thing about that that issue about uh, deploying troops in issues of insurrection and rebellion. Is that's in the original unmodified constitution. That's founding fathers level constitution. Yeah. Um, was in the original document. And most people are not aware of that. And that's the, the funny thing about it is that that's one of the reasons why when George Bush did his uh, series of illegal executive orders, he didn't make one to allow the military to be deployed against us because it's not very well known that 
they already are. He made an yeah. executive order to make it legal for mercenaries to be deployed against us, which was another thing that the British Empire did, you know, the, the Hessians that they were using against us, um, because it was easier to get mercenaries to do things against the citizenry than a citizen's army. Mm. Um, you know, you got to really brainwash your own, you know, your your soldiers if you're going to get them to turn, you know, do nasty things to your own people. Uh, especially when you consider that the military is generally recruited from the salt of the earth. You know, the mm. kind of people who are not necessarily going to be all that interested in rounding people up and putting them into camps. You know, uh, without a really strong propaganda campaign. But guys like Blackwater, you know, who we have deployed against U.S. citizens. Uh, for example, in uh, New Orleans after the mm. K- Katrina, um, it'd be very easy to convince them to do it. Most because these people are already doing crazy stuff in other countries. In many cases, these mercenary groups are also made up. They're they're international. Exactly. Um, they have, go ahead. They have they have people from African countries who you know these people were raised in civil war and you know I've talked to, to soldiers personally or ex-soldiers who you know talked about the the contractors and. Um, you know, there's some contractors who are just known for being the ones that you call if you want to have really, really nasty stuff done. And and yeah, it's 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 there's nothing new under the sun. And people, I think the, one of the biggest problems with our country is that people just don't know anything about history. We have this mythological history that we pass down in schools, and it's always about how America is this great country that's never done anything wrong. Let's cut out every single, you know toppling of, of a third world country that we've done in the last dec um you know, fifty years, sixty years. Um cut out all the 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 unpleasant uh, you know dark stories, the, the things that you wouldn't want to the, the things that we're ashamed of and uh, you know hide the real history and then people I don't know, they, they to them it just seems so far fetched that anything like that could ever happen in this country. It's it's like it's like it's all reverse. It's like you know, you have to convince them that history can repeat, because history could never re- repeat here because we're the exception. You know, America's above everyone else, and so nothing bad like that could ever happen here. Even when all the signs show that the the preparations for something like that are happening, I mean, the Patriot Act hasn't been fully applied. Well, if if it's not relevant, if it's not being used right now, why is it in place? Why is it being held there? And it's being held there for a reason. You know, they want to have the ability to use that power against us when they when they want to, and it it may not be right now, you know. It, but it you'd be kind of naive to not think that they have some intention of using it at some point. Right, and that's especially the funny thing is, and I've told people, you know, you don't even need to list once again, you know, you don't even need to go to a conspiracy website to see what's wrong with the Patriot Act. You go to the WhiteHouse.gov website and you start reading the Patriot Act. And a lot of it is going to be hard for you to get. You know, I went through all this when I ran for Congress. But just the part, for example, about the powers of the executives that are provided. The president, and this is in the original write-up. You can go read it yourself. Uh, the president has the authority to declare you an enemy combatant. And if he does, he can demand, uh, basically he can seize any and all of your property and do what he sees fit with it. <laughs> That's just yeah. in the that's just in the basic write up of the Patriot Act. That's that's the power of a king. Yes, and there's no and there's no oversight. It doesn't say Congress can tell him no. He doesn't have to ask the Senate. He just does it. He determines. You are an enemy combatant. 
and then just decides to take your stuff. The funny thing is, is it includes people who live in other countries outside the United States. Mm-hmm. It's like so we have a law that says it's legal for us to take other people's stuff if we determine that they're enemy combatants in other countries. So we have a law on the books that essentially instructs us to take stuff from other people if we've determined that they're enemy combatants. With no tribunal, there's no appeals process involved. He just says it, and that's it. And that's just in the Patriot Act that you don't even have to like – because one of the reasons that people look at the Patriot Act and they give up on reading it is because – uh, like many other laws, they're like it's like reading Swiss cheese because all the information is there. But unless you know how to navigate the the U.S. code, which is essentially the law, um, like it, like in many cases you'll read the Patriot Act and you'll see uh, subsection 3A to be rewritten as blah, you know, and you're like, what the hell are they talking about? But just the just the part where you get to uh, what the Patriot Act provides the executive, meaning the president, with the ability to do. Um, is just astounding. I just sat there looking at the government website, reading this stuff, you know, going, well, what? You know? <laughs> and it's funny because every time, you know, because of course my friends don't ever want to talk about this sort of thing, and they are like, you know, you're crazy, blah, blah, blah. You know, and I remember taking one to the government website, and I said, now you tell me what that means. What does that mean? Because it looks pretty plain to me. <laughs> it means... President Bush looks at you and decides you're an enemy combatant, seizes all of your property, and throws you in prison. And now it's um, you know King King Obama that can do that, right? And, and which he said he was going to get rid of it, but he's not. And you know, there's all this hope. You know, some people were just ecstatic about this Tea Party thing, and I, my fear is that unless we elect someone who really clearly has a track record, we're very likely going to get just a right-wing Obama, somebody who's you know, amazingly saying everything that we wanted to hear on the libertarian side or the conservative side, whatever, whatever position on the spectrum they feel is the most appropriate for the current American public, which may be an explanation to why you know, you, the, the Republican de- debates didn't represent um, such an outright uh, neocon presence like, like usual. Maybe they've just gauged the the public and said, well, you know, we need to give them what they want, or at least make them think they're going to get what they want. Yeah, my estimate is we're going to end up with essentially a, another another puppet on the right. And that's well, yeah, and it's going to be a, they're going to be saving us from our <laughs> our economic problems. The funny thing is, is that it, it's amazing to me because the libertarian side of things, although civil rights are very well covered. Because people ask me, like, you know, how can you still speak well of Ron Paul? I'm like, on civil rights issues and foreign policy, the guy's great. You know, and if he got elected, I I think that a lot of things would get better. I don't think that freeing up the market and deregulating everything is going to suddenly make our financial situation any better. Because our financial situation isn't being created because of regulation and taxes. It's being created because they're just picking up and moving to countries where where the working class is willing to be slaves. You know, and I know that sounds extreme, but you, you look at the way the average Chinese citizen works. I mean, I just, I, I think I gave you that link, is that Apple had to have their Chinese workers sign an agreement not to commit suicide. <laughs> because, I mean, as silly as that is, sign this pledge not to commit suicide. You know, 
um, because of the working conditions, you know, it, for the people who make iPods and iPads. Well, to bring it back to what you were saying about Ron Paul, mm-hmm. there, you know, he says a lot of good things, but then there is kind of this uh, naivety about his perspective on on economic issues, and in a sense that he never talks about the petrodollar. And the same is with Peter Schiff. And they never talk about that, and, and they act as if, yeah, we can adjust spending, we can, you know, change our way of handling, you know, uh, these entitlement issues or whatever, and that's going to somehow set things straight. No, no, you can't just pull out of these wars and, you know, change the the entitlements and hope everything's going to go back to the normal. I mean, there's a reason why president after president is is, is engaging in the same pattern. It's because it's the powers that be know what will happen if we pull off. You know, maybe the rest of, the, of Americans, uh, you know, would say that they would be against all this stuff. But in reality, if if they knew what would happen to them, if the, and if if we press that button, okay, let's be ethical right now. How many people would actually press it? You know, let's actually, you know, do things right. You know only live by the means of what, that we have in this country. Let's not oppress the rest of the world. Let's not exploit the rest of the world. Let's not you know, basically be the tyrants of the world. And let's accept the consequences that come of it. Um, if they actually knew the suffering that would come, I don't think most people would press. As ethical, as, ethical or as high-minded as they, as they claim to be, I don't think they would do it. Yeah, and that's, it, 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 they just do a really good job of making sure that we don't know the implications of what's going on. And that that's one of the things that bothers me about the libertarian movement is that, uh, for example, I used to be part of a libertarian network and I would play movies like The Corporation and they would flip out. Like, you know, what are you doing? You can't blame the corporations. It's all the government's fault. I'm like, the corporations own the government, man. <laughs> Hello, yeah. you know. And then, like, I'd talk about, you know, like, talking about sweatshops. You you can't do that to a libertarian. They'll be like, well, you know, there's nothing wrong with sweatshops. You know, all exchanges are voluntary. Otherwise, they wouldn't take place. And I'm like, yeah, because they're choosing between starving to death or not starving to death. You know, (laughs) depending on where you are. You know, in certain South American sweatshops, for example, at one point they decided to go on strike. So the local South American just, uh, you know, a you know, corporate owner just went and hired a bunch of thugs and started shooting people until they went back to work. You know, yeah, and that's happened in the United States too. I mean, the Rockefellers were—they um, were getting a really bad reputation for that kind of stuff, and they just decided to clean up their image. But you know, if you really research the history of the Rockefellers putting down um, strikes, I mean, it's very, very brutal. They actually were able to get the U.S. military involved. So, yeah, I mean. It, Free market fundamentalism is is like any form of fundamentalism. It's just it's got so many ridiculous, unanswered questions and and circular logic. It's it's obvious to anybody who really looks at the situation that it's it's the, it's not, the government's not the problem. You get government out of the issue out, out of the, out of the picture with the current power structure, and then you'll just have absolutely unfettered um, corporate mania. Uh, they, and we already have Blackwater and. You know Halliburton and all these these massive you know companies using the the government like a like a sock puppet puppet 
Um, but imagine if they didn't have to, you know, and imagine we, if we got the, the luxury of dealing with them as the, the warlords that they are direct and in person. Um, yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't like that too much. I mean, it's definitely not the solution. You, you, it, what is true though, is that these corporations got into power using the government. They used government power in order to get their position. Um, that's, you know, they used the law, they used manipulation of the system. Um, but it's it's far too late to just undo that, you know, just undo regulation and, and have that go away. You you have to really make the corporation itself illegal, and I think that's a, just a basic step that would have to be taken. Well, right, and they say that you know eliminating corporate personhood, and I agree that that's a step in the right direction. But even before we had corporations, you know, rich individuals could you know could still do amazing damage you know, to a local economy to get whatever they wanted. Um, the corporation certainly makes it easier. The Rockefellers are a standing example, or right. the Rothschilds. Um, yeah. Or the nobility of of you know the past, you know monarchies. The monarchies are essentially based on the same concept. And mind you, they did have some kind of silly religious right or whatever to their uh, their claim to leadership. But still, you know, it just it, even in systems. This is also why I say that switching to the gold standard is not enough because even when money was made out of gold, physically made out of gold and silver, they were still ginormous pockets of poor and a few people with a lot of money. You know, and that's... <laughs> well, the Rothschilds came into power through gold. Right. So, I mean, in, in all of the the big empire um, jostling that, that, you know, established the banking system as it is in the world happened with gold as the as the standard. So it's obvious that the, the, having things as gold doesn't protect you from that. It, it just it actually, in my mind, makes it easier because they're the ones who are rich enough to, to be buying up the stores of actual physical gold right now. I mean, it's an, there's all these people. This is something you know. You've you've seen me making these videos confronting the gold and silver bugs, and I, I make a lot of people angry. But it's it's really naive for these people to be thinking that because they bought five thousand dollars worth of gold or five thousand dollars worth of silver or whatever they can afford with their day job that they're going to be in any position to compete with these multi-billionaires and sometimes countries who are buying out this this metal right now and if we switched who's going to be holding it you know sure yeah you might you might be in a better situation than the guy in the ghetto but you know you're going to run out and then guess who's going to be your master the guy who has you know the vault full of gold and silver you know it's the worship of these metals to me um, I find it repulsive because yeah. they're setting themselves up for their own slavery. Right, and that's that's why I said. I mean, especially about the you know when I when I'm, I obviously can't use the same language I used when we talked about this earlier because you made a good series of videos trying to get people to understand that they're investing in silver and gold is is not going to help them. You know, it post collapse. Uh, you're going to show me a piece of gold and I'm going to tell you to stick it somewhere. I'm not going to be interested in your, your, your rock, <laughs> you know, especially since the only real purpose for gold is, is electronics. And before that, it was just a matter of social stratification. But that's why I said, it's like when, when the Spaniards came to take the gold from the native Americans, they kind of looked at them like, well, okay, this is a pretty metal, but why do you care about it so much? It didn't even occur to them. You know that that it had some crazy purpose. I mean, you think about it. There's so much of it 
that's just over and inflated. And in, in the case of a collapse, it's like, you know, I remember making this point to you and, and you chuckled about it, but it comes from an apocalyptic film that I watched. I can't remember the name of it anymore, but uh, it was a guy, you know, walking around Earth with a cybernetic dog and they were trading <laughs> cans of food. That's that was the currency, cans of food. And depending on what they were, depending on what their value was, and peaches was the most valuable. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was the form of exchange. I mean, just think about that for a minute. You know, your your kids are hungry. Uh, you know, your house is you know falling apart, and some dude shows up with some gold. Are you interested in that? No. You got any food? You got any clothing? You got any fuel? You know, uh, at post collapse, I don't I don't see precious metals meaning a damn thing. You know, and that's that's why I just. <laughs> And I get it. I mean, I I understand why a lot of people, they talk about having a solid currency and not a fiat currency, and, and I understand where they're coming from. But if you base it on a precious metal, it's too easy to own it all. Like you said, the vaults, you know, these people are just going to have, I mean, because they've already got money now, I guarantee you that, you know, what us common citizens are going to put together is not going to compete. Yeah. The, the, the big power players are buying gold and silver. So, you know, we're not in anywhere close to their market. These guys who are flashing their, their silver porn, or that's what they call it sometimes, they'll actually say silver porn. Um, they're just making themselves feel good about it. Um, one thing, I'm actually going to make a video about this re pretty soon. If people, Some of the people on my channel commented back saying, well, you know, I'm saving up gold and silver now, and you know, the value is rising, and I'm going to buy land. And I'm going to buy you know, rural land, because that's what I tell people. Like, If you've got money, just put it in land. Get land. If you don't got enough money to get land, find someone who does. Um, but the problem is with that whole theory of that I'm going to like save up my gold and silver and I'm going to go buy land is that rural land prices have been rising at the same time. Right? I didn't re I didn't realize this until the other day because I wanted to look at the value of land in my area. You know, partially just for people who you know I might invite into this area who might be interested in buying land because this is a nice area. Um, and you know we bought it thirty six thousand for uh, eleven acres, which that's a good price. It was a good price then, but I mean the going rate. We saw some other properties that were you know in the same range, some at forty thousand. Now I look on the same sites, and I looked all across. I couldn't find anything less than seventy nine thousand for that for ten acres, not eleven acres. So. My my assessment of it is they're not going to be able to waltz in and just grab farmable land, you know, for pennies on the dollar like they think they are. Because, yeah, sure, a lot of worthless assets like, you know, these these paper uh, cookie cutter houses that they've been printing out for the last you know few decades. Yeah, nobody wants those anymore, and the prices are dropping. But the ability to produce food. That is going to go up in relationship to, to the dollar at the same rate as any all the other commodities, all the real assets, the things that people absolutely need. You know, rural land is, is, is the precursor to food. And, you know, the smart thing to do, and this is what I tell everybody that I know, is, is if you can convert which, the money you have into land, you know, convert the debt that you have into land. I mean, maybe you don't buy the land all the way out, but, you know, basically get a, a patch that you're, you know, paying payments on that you can actually set up in a situation that if, if everything collapses, who cares about that debt? You know, right? Just, <laughs> you, you'll be you'll be in a situation where you have that land. 
No, they're certainly not. It's not like the banks are going to matter at that point, you know, but it's, but even, you know, and I, and I tell uh, libertarians this as well, you know, I generally tell them, I'm like, well, you know, we want to understand your approach and, and why it's not communist, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm like, look, in order for you to understand where I'm coming from, uh, let me take a different approach. And that is that um, rather than trying to change a governmental system that is never going to change, at least not in a way that's going to benefit anybody from those, but those on top, why don't you just try to work to make the government as irrelevant to your life as possible through developing self-sustaining technologies on your own land, you know, produce your own energy, clean your own water, produce your own food, and at that point, you know, taxes barely matter to you anyway. You know, uh, obviously, if you're making your own products, then you're not, you know, getting sales tax. Get out of the economy. Yeah. Don't try to fix it because the people who, the, the, as Peter calls them, the men behind the curtain, are not interested in you fixing their economy. And yeah. anybody who gets close to it will be dealt with. One way or the other. Yeah, I mean that's that's the, the position that we're trying to take here, and and yeah, at some point I'm going to unveil it public. I guess this is the unveiling. Here we go. The, the the long-term goal for this actual property is that we want to have other people be here and actually try to do something on a larger scale. I mean, not not huge. I mean, we only got 11 acres, but. Um, I think a smart idea for is for people to start forming into groups, you know, combining your resources and start setting up a situ- situation where you, you can comfortably live right now and recede as much as you can from that system um, so that you're the, the least amount effective, affected from, you know, any kind of collapse that comes. What people need to realize, though, is this is not something you want to be pulling together when it, the, the shit is actually hitting the fan because it takes a long time, a lot of work and a lot of resources to do this kind of thing. And I've been out here, it, it, well, we bought the land two years ago. Um, it's We've only, in this last two months, been in a position to actually live here. It takes a lot of time to get all your ducks in a row. Um, and then once we're actually here, I mean, it's a heck of a lot of work. I mean, you just, you start from a situation where you don't have a house and you know, you're trying to build a house, get a garden in place, and then also trying to organize socially with the people that you want to be involved with. And, you know, you do not want to be in that kind of situation when you don't have any way of making money. You know, you don't have communication systems, all that kind of thing. The time to start preparing and start getting ready for that kind of thing is now. Um, so, Well, yeah, and that's the reason I tell people to start building infrastructure to produce for themselves. This is why I... You know, I brought this up on so many shows. I brought it up on the old North Virginia Patriots show that I was on. People don't understand uh, the benefits that we have in things called department stores <laughs> and grocery stores. You know, uh, it, financial collapse starts happening, and it's just like that picture you have in one of your videos about collapse. You see somebody going through the grocery store, and there's nothing on the shelves because when that infrastructure starts to fail – there's not going to be anything in the grocery stores. There's not going to be anything in the department stores. Especially, I mean, when we talk about department stores, you know, China cuts us off. You know, well, there goes our iPads. There goes, you know, uh, the majority of our phones. There goes, like, so many other things that we become dependent on. You know, but the the fact that, you know, food uh, in our in our way of living now, 
is almost all shipped from other places. You know, and, it's tied to, and it's tied to petroleum by just the fact that you have to have petroleum in order to run the tractors for the pesticides. I mean, right. it's, it's totally so tied to petroleum. You know, you would never see a banana, you know, in, in the days before. That's why I keep telling people, you know, go back and watch Little House on the Prairie. In Little House on the Prairie, Mr. Ingalls went to the general store maybe once a month to buy a couple of tools or something. But for the most part, he had land and could take care of himself. He worked at the mill for extra money when he needed to. But I don't even really want to say needed to. Very rarely were they on hard times. And it's because he was a farmer and they could make their own food. You know, the uh, the women at that time period made clothes. You know, so many critical skills that people just don't understand would be required to live in those circumstances. You know, it's hard to re- it's hard to recover those skills if you weren't raised with it, and, yeah. and that's and, and I'm I'm in this situation right now. Like, you know, we've got you know corn and beans and squash in the ground, and then we then we have like some insect that comes and starts devastating the the beans. It's like, oh my god, what do I do? Well, my grandparents didn't tell me, my parents didn't tell me. I have no knowledge about this. I'm I'm having to start from scratch, you know. And I have the internet. If I didn't have the internet, then I would have nothing. And 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 I have the ability to, you know, order some organic pesticide or um, some organic fertilizer or some of the, you know, pick up resources that I can't produce on this land. There's a lot of things that are not going to be just readily accessible in that kind of situation. And people just don't think of it. You have to think about everything, you know, even things like concrete. I mean, our region right here where I'm at, I mean, maybe there's somebody within 100 miles. But where I am right here, I don't even have rocks. I mean, all I have is clay. Right. You know? Right. So I would have to deal. It, with, go ahead. I would have to deal with what we have, which what we have, what we can do here is earth bag building. You know, that's that's something that's, you know, to our advantage. But even that, I don't think I could do, you know, without the polypropylene sacks. You know? So it's a huge number of things like that, and you know, there's there's a lot of those people who get into that hoard mentality that like storing food, storing water. Um, you know, bug out bags. Um, it, you know, I have a lot of those people who subscribe to my channel, and I'm sure there's at least one of those guys out there listening. And I've been pretty consistent about this when I talk to them. You know, it, it's it's one thing to prepare for a short-term collapse, but it, the collapse that we're coming up against cannot be short-term. It's impossible for it to be short-term. There's no way the United States can snap back out of it. There's no way the United States can convince the rest of the world to pick the petrodollar back up and start shipping us products for, for paper. They would be right. insane to do it. If, if they got us into the position where they got free, why on earth would they step back into those shackles? That's, you know, and that's a very real implication that keeps coming back, as you pointed out, is, you know, we're trading paper, we're trading fictional money, we're trading credit drawn up that means nothing for goods. And if if for some reason everybody just decided to stop playing that game, uh, we're the ones that are left out in the game of musical chairs because we're not sitting on anything. We've depleted a lot of the natural resources in the United States. We only have resources because we run around taking them from other countries, whether through economic hitman means or just outright invasions and setting up puppet governments. You know, uh, and our manufacturing is in total decay. Hell, the infrastructure of our country is in total decay. Bridges, roads, and all that falling apart. 
It just, it's, you know, when we think about it, well, you know, maybe that's what it is. We waited out the Soviet Union and waited for it to destroy itself. Maybe that's what China's doing. Maybe they're, they're doing that to us. They're waiting for us to get fat and stupid and drunk <laughs> so they can kill us in our sleep, so to speak. I think you know, we're already fat, stupid, and drunk. I know, I know, but we're still conscious enough. You, you, you get the, you, my meaning, though. It's just like, you know, you want to murder somebody, you let, you know, you, you, you send them over to a party or whatever, and you, you let them have all the fun and whores and, you know, drinking they want, and then, you know, once they're out, you put a bullet in their brain. Easy, you know, if that's all you want to do. And that's, and we're getting there. The difference is, is that we're not quite unconscious yet, you know, we still yeah. we still have a big gun in our hand for the moment, and that's why I think the, the United States is accelerating the this uh, militarism in, in the Middle East. It's, if you watch the progression, it's 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 almost exponential the speed which we're moving on a historical scale. I mean, they're going to look back at this and and just be like, oh yeah, this is just you know these these brief moments before the big the big bang. Um, Everything is 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 in, in fast forward, and the United States is doing absolutely nothing to slow it down. I mean, I'm amazed, honestly, that that they would be opening up so many fronts, so many war fronts. I mean, it brings us back to that question: Do they really expect to win? Because how can you take on so much, extend yourself out in so many directions? I mean, these were the same people. I mean, like Zygmunt Brzezinski. If anybody's you know, interested in the real powers of be, you should look up his history. Um, this is a guy who was involved in in drawing the Soviet Union into Afghanistan intentionally. Um, you know, they did that by funding the resistance to the um, pro-Soviet uh, government in Afghanistan, and that was enough to make the Soviets feel that they needed to actually, you know, have a military presence, and that was enough to incite the uh, the uh, Islamic insurgency and the United States back to that and then use that to actually take the Soviet Union down. But this is that same guy is is still a policy advisor for the United States. I mean, he's he's still inside of the um the Obama administration. This guy understands that this kind of thing is the way you take a country down by getting them overextended to get them, you know, to draw them into conflicts they can't win. So what are they thinking? Like they're doing exactly the thing that they that they intentionally drew the Soviet Union into. It's it's it, 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 it's it's really hard for me to believe that they're that stupid. You listen to Zygmunt Brzezinski talk; he's not stupid. He's a very very smart man. I mean, have you have you ever listened to Zygmunt Brzezinski? No, but I, I believe you, and I, I follow the pattern that you're talking about. I hadn't thought about that. That basically the the war in Afghanistan was one of the things that broke the Soviet Union's back. Um, for sure, it's it's considered the graveyard of nations. That's one of its nicknames. Mm-hmm. And and this, the the thing is, is, the guy who actually orchestrated, you know, the the military, uh, the the political manipulation that got Soviet the Soviet Union involved, was one of the guys who actually made the final call to go into Afghanistan himself. Like this is Sigmund Brzezinski. Uh, this is, you know, I get to these points when I look at all these things, and you have to come to a point where you go, I don't know. You know, there's a lot of stuff about what's going on here that's really perplexing to me, and you know, and, and there, there's a lot of these things that keep coming out of the blue. It's like, 
what where did they come up with that like the whole the whole Osama bin Laden killing uh, so-called killing I mean that was just I mean yeah we knew at some point they were going to have to do that but you know it's kind of a surprise especially in considering like all the other stuff that was going on I mean they have the front with Libya going on and if you look at the way you know Obama's talking about it right now it seems pretty clear they're they're in, intending to ramp something up with Pakistan right that's which, yeah <laughs> which is fucking dangerous <laughs> pardon my french because they got nukes <laughs> yeah it, yeah. But, how many but at the same time it's like how many of these things can you keep going like even if even if their their intention is to is to just you know bring destabilization it's like i don't know that's the point where you gotta put your hands in the air and just go okay man i don't even know i don't even understand you madmen because these guys are insane Uh, it's yeah that's you know i I, the, the thing that keeps coming back to my head though is just that you know, it, it would be one thing just to write it off as insanity, but my brain recognizes that there are people in that circumstance that are intelligent, and it makes you wonder what else is going on. It's like I talked to Senator Gravel. I don't know if you remember Mike Gravel. I think you have his channel favorited, but he was one of the one of the guys in the Democratic debates who called out Hillary and jumped on Obama quite a bit uh, before they got rid of him. He's an old you know, firecracker uh, from the 60s, actually. That's how long ago he was a senator, was during the Vietnam War. And uh, I talked to him and was like, what do you think about Obama? And he was like, you know, I remember what it was like being a young senator who thought I could change things. He's like, he's like, you know, for instance, I'm sure the kid believes that he could end the war in Iraq in his first, you know, term. This is a while ago, obviously. And he's like, but I think what's going to happen is he's going to get elected and then he's going to be faced with you know, the CIA giving him the rest of the information that the rest of us are not privy to. And he's going to realize that he can't do what it is that he thinks, at least not without making a lot of people angry. And then he's just not going to do it. And he was right. Everything Mike said about Obama was, was true. Um, and that is another whole other aspect to, to what goes on here that people don't recognize is that in many cases, it may not even necessarily be that a politician is intentionally lying to you. It's that he doesn't really get the game until he's president. Until you're the chief executive, there are so many things you're totally ignorant of because you're not allowed to know. You know, we don't tell congressmen the stuff that we tell the president. We don't tell senators the stuff we tell the president. They might be a little more privy, but uh, they don't find out what's really going on until they get in. You know, and I can I recognize that even just in a smaller organization. It's like I was the CEO of a nonprofit at one time, and until you're in charge, you don't know what it's like. You know, you don't you don't know also how limited you are in what you can do, because there's so much bureaucracy. That's why I said even in a small nonprofit organization with an SOP and you know just like a few other board members to contend with, there was a lot of things that you think you could get done that you just can't. And I'm not saying that Obama's automatically innocent or whatever, but I honestly think that uh, the presidency has been a dog and pony show for a long time, and that the real movers and shakers, like during the Bush administration, you know, was Dick Cheney, Karl Rove, uh, and the whole neoconservative wing, uh, Rumsfeld, all of those people. I think that uh, in my assessment that uh, Colin Powell was a little bit too honest for his for his own good so he got out of there because he couldn't stand it anymore um they get into that a little bit in no end in sight as well because he had a good strong cohesive plan on how to help the iraqi people get their stuff together 
and it was rejected. In fact, every bit of work that he did to try to make Iraq go smoothly was thrown out the window, and they put that idiot Rumsfeld in charge. You know, because somehow being an ex-CEO of Monsanto made Donald Rumsfeld qualified to be a Secretary of Defense. I never understood that exactly. I mean, unless we're just going to poison all their crops. Oh, wait, that's what we did. Yeah. Depleted uranium has annihilated Iraq. It's The funny thing is, is there was a guy who went there recently and expected the depleted uranium stuff going on in Iraq and was like, this is not a place suitable for human inhabitants anymore. He's like, this is not this is not a safe place. He's like, if if we were in the United States and I found what I'm finding here as far as radiation levels and all that due to depleted uranium, this place would be cordoned off and nobody would be allowed to live here. That's that's the nate that's the situation in Iraq. And that's why their children are being born en masse, mutated, and getting cancer at age six or below. You know, that's just the kids. So we have somebody who wants to be added to the call on the subject of eco-villages, and I'm going to go ahead and do that now. Um, as soon as he picks up, we'll have Jeff added to the call. I guess he's from Canada. Hey, Jeff, you're going to need to pause the show if you haven't already. Uh, sure. Okay. How do, uh, just, hey, well, okay. as long as I can't hear it, that's fine. Okay. How you doing, Jeff? Welcome to V Radio. Great. How you doing? Not too bad. You had something you wanted to add? Uh, well, I was just going to throw out there, I posted my link in about an eco-village that I started here in Ontario, and I'm just uh, spreading the link. Actually, it's not started yet. I'm just forming it on Facebook, and I've gotten a lot of people uh, kind of signing up, and I'm just trying to pass the word and get everyone to pass it on, and that's what I'm doing. And basically, it's set up on the resource-based economy. Like, what I want to do is set it up on the resource-based economy style outlook and have, like, uh, and, uh, like shared resources. And basically, I've been in touch with a lot of people. It's only been up for three days, the Facebook page, and I have about 300 people on it. Um, and basically, what's uh, a lot of people in Canada, too. And I've been in contact with people who are basically doing this uh, already, who have an eco-village formed. And I'm going to see how that works out. And basically, there's another gentleman, uh, Rob Menard. Uh, he's here in Canada. I don't know if you know. He's kind of a spokesman for the whole free man on the land movement here in Canada. Uh, but basically, he, um, he he's also been in touch with me, and uh, I'm trying to talk with him soon. And uh, he he's has plans a group with a group of people to possibly go around Canada and help uh, construction of eco villages. And basically, people will pool together resources uh, for a team that would go across the country and help with construction. Uh, so basically, that way we could help uh, spread them all over Canada. All right. So basically, yeah, it's, it's an interesting project. Uh, is there a website or anything people could go to to check that out, or do they just uh, no web page yet? Just the Facebook page. Um, I have some people who are in the web kind of design thing uh, interested, so I may get some help uh, with them on that. But basically, it's just the Facebook page. I'll I'll post it in the uh, forum here at the bottom in the blog talk. Right. All right. Cool. We'll go right on ahead and do that. Thanks again. Was there anything else? Uh, no, that's uh, basically I'll let you guys get back to it. There's a lot of stuff uh, we can talk in private, and then uh, maybe we can do another show sometime or something. Sure, absolutely. It's always good to hear from my fans in Canada. You take care. Yeah, you too. Thank you. Bye. No Thanks so, for all you guys are doing, too. I just wanted to say you guys, uh, uh, you know, it's good. Uh, I'd like to, to talk with you guys about the issues. So. Well, good. Make sure you subscribe to um, Aaron's channel.
channel too. You can find the the link to his website in my links page on v, at vradio.org. Okay, well, great. Nice talking to you guys. I'll let you guys get back to it, and uh, we'll we'll talk soon. Thanks again. Okay, right, see you guys. Take it easy. Bye. Yep. Bye, everybody. Bye. Yeah. What were you going to say, Aaron? I don't remember. <laughs> <laughs> it was so profound that your mind could not contain it. <laughs> no, that's an interesting idea, the guy talking about going and um, you know, setting up eco-villages all over the place. Uh, yeah, I haven't actually heard much about this uh, free man on the land project. I mean, not, this is kind of new to me, so I guess I'll have to go research it. Um, you know, I'm I'm not in a position to actually go around starting a whole bunch of them, but I've I've lived on some of them in my lifetime. You know, I actually lived for an extended period in a number of them, and um, yeah, that's the first thing I recommend to people who are interested in that kind of thing is go live in some of them. It's a lot easier than than trying to to start one yourself because there's a lot of um, there's a lot of things that you you need to learn in order to, to, to successfully pull that off that aren't necessarily tied to the actual resources and the techniques and things like that. A lot of it has on the human element. Yeah, very much so. It, it's hard to get people to work together. It's Over and over again, the same patterns come up, same problems. That's and why uh, yeah, Jack Reed of Community Planet, um, he, he's actually started on the human element, and he doesn't have anything else. But uh, he he works very heavily with the uh, consensus decision making and uh, getting people trained for that because he's also been in a lot of eco villages and has watched them fall apart. And it's largely it is a human element. And there's a whole other art form to understanding how to make group decisions. Um, and it's not just about I get up on the microphone and I shout louder than other people so I get what I want. In fact, that's actually the opposite of what you need to be doing. Um, and it's it requires a certain degree of uh, maturity, and yeah. uh, like you know, like when you invited me to be part of what you're doing, I'm very confident you and I could come to decisions about anything, and it's no problem, and it's because of a state of mutual respect. But everybody has to have that, and if mm -hmm. it if it breaks down, it can be a real problem. When you look at these various failed communes that you know that get thrown in the faces of any group that ever uses the word share out loud. Um, you know, is that basically uh, the, it, these personality conflicts can become a problem, you know, greed, things of that nature. And that's why, uh, for example, Jack talks about this, and I talk about some of the problems that we've had in the past. And he's like, you know, the kind of people you're talking about, he's like, I would never even make it through my screening process. He's like, I wouldn't even consider inviting somebody like that to such a community. He's like, what you once you get such a community started, and you've created a, a society within that community, then other people can be introduced mm. because at that point they're moving into it and going, oh, well, I guess that's how things are here. You know, but as far as just throwing together a random melding pot and expecting to develop a, a cooperative community out of that, no way. Yeah, and even then, even when you introduce people from the outside, I mean, I've seen that often goes wrong just because people come in and they have all these ideas about how they think things should be and they start trying to impose it and then there's just, you know, the fireworks start flying and it's really hard. I mean, people just don't realize because we've been living in this, you know, really compartmentalized and separated kind of lifestyles in America. We don't, you know, live with our parents. We don't live with our extended family. We don't, we basically just live in these like little apartments by ourselves and, 
you know, most people do. I mean, I know there's other people who have other kinds of lifestyles, but the rest of the world, not the not every country. Obviously, the, a lot of the Western countries don't. They live like us, but most of the world is the actual majority of the human population has to live in close proximity with other people, and they have to learn how to deal with these kinds of issues. And a lot of times, you know, strict um, social hierarchies um, are developed so that people know their place and, you know, they don't have to worry about it. It's just like the pecking order of chickens and, and you know, or buzzards. Um, and so Americans in particular, when they're thrown into this kind of situation, they just, they, they, they tend to flounder. Americans and Europeans, I've seen the same thing. Like me and my wife, we met at a, a French eco village meeting, and um, that was a disaster, absolute disaster, because the woman who was starting it didn't take responsibility for the fact that she was a leader. And she thought that she could, you know, have this kind of situation without without leadership. And um, that's not to say that rulers. But you know, if people don't take initiative, and you know, you, you invite some people, people to your land and start talking, say you want to have a meeting about that kind of thing, you have to realize that most people aren't used to you know just jumping into things and you know taking initiative by themselves. Like, so it's it's it's, it's a very it's a very difficult thing to do. It's one of the most difficult things that anybody could take on. But I think it's the thing that we have to do. <laughs> I really right. really want people to start doing it. Um, and that's, you know, and I, I agree with you and, you know, there are leadership models that you can take that will help empower everybody. Like in my own circumstances, whenever I engage in leadership, like, you know, in, in the reenactment stuff that I do, uh, I'm kind of a, all right, I'm going to take control, but only for the purposes of ensuring that everybody gets to talk. And then it's also my job to make sure that the people who are are quiet personalities. I need to goad them into, you know, con- you know, conversing until they're comfortable. You know, that's a responsible leadership attitude to have. And and it's it it bothers me sometimes when I talk to certain anarchist personalities. It's like, for example, you know, I I cannot imagine trying to do an eco village with the people I knew in the Libertarian Party. Not a chance. You know, those people. It's like it's it's individuality taken to the extreme that it's like. You just start disagreeing with what people say just because you don't want to be a conformist, not because there's any reason, <laughs> you know, to do so. It, it reminds me of like the 16-year-old the kid, you know, who just starts doing the opposite of whatever their parents say, um, you know. Uh, so, sorry about that. Um, there are certain personality types um, who could never succeed in that circumstance. And they're also, you know, terrified and worried about their individual rights to the point that they can't even work together on anything. And the attitude that gets bred out of that, you know, it's like uh, Michael Badnerick put in one of his recent speeches to the Libertarian Party. He's like, all you guys do is endlessly, viciously attack each other. And anybody who deviates from the way you're thinking just a little bit, you start calling them a socialist. And then you wonder why you can't form committees that are in any fashion uh effective you know you can't get anything done because everybody's so busy fighting each other all the time over pecking order you know that you you don't have no common purpose and that's actually one of the things that family used to do like the uh, one of the ways that you know the british crown conquered 
the you know the Scots and the Irish was to get everybody fighting everybody and also to start to break down the clan system. Clans were uh, huge groups of people who did have a, a you know a family obligation to one another. Nowadays that doesn't exist, and that's one of the reasons why the, the some of the free market libertarian attitude actually bothers me because. Um, they're teaching everybody to be selfish, to only care for yourself, and that the idea, the mere notion that anybody might suggest to work together is collectivism, which they equate to being like a four-letter word. You know, yeah, that's that's actually really strange because humans historically have always been pack animals. I mean, this you know, when you deal with people who have a lot of other programming, you know, religious programming, it becomes difficult for them to to really understand the real world. Because they think that the Earth is ten thousand years old and you know was created in seven days, so anthropology as a whole can just be thrown out the window because we didn't, you know, the the first hundred thousand years of human existence didn't exist, um, that, and that's a big problem. But if if anybody looks at human history, and the majority of human history was as tribes, um, it just absolute, you know, collect it is collective. You know, but without the the, the four letter word connotation, I mean, it's the most stable form of human existence that's ever existed. I think what people become scared of is when you get the mixture of of the, that 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 group mentality with um, with militarized force and and coercion, you know, basically. Communist communism in itself is is a pretty nasty situation. Like you know, real communism. I mean, I would never want to live in that kind of situation because it does. It strips people of their assets and then puts them in a situation where um, they're forced to you know contribute to this Borg in a sense. And then you know, you still end up with this oligarchy that's controlling everything, but they don't have any competition at that point. So, so I guess it's. To me, I like the idea of, of collectivism on a small scale. There's small groups of people who know each other and, and take responsibility for their participation rather than being forced, I guess. Does that make yeah. sense? No, it absolutely does. And, um, uh, basically, when it comes – you know, there is like, for example, the Twin Oaks, uh, Twin Oaks Commune um, – is a is a is a successful version of communism that is working, but it's also voluntary. If you don't like that commune, you can just go to another one, or you can go do your own thing. You know, um, but I, I the the point that I want to close with on on that particular issue, because you know, as I know, you know, you, you you're you're having storm issues. So basically, ironically, storm clouds are gathering <laughs> over storm clouds gathering his home as we speak. So and he's been and on with me for a while. And I'm actually standing outside with my computer because inside there's a baby that makes lots of noise. So I'm actually <laughs> there's actually some urgency. <laughs> right, going to get off of here soon. Here, but um, was that there is another aspect to taking individuality that far and selfishism that far? Uh, is is that you get to that point and then it's easy for a small group of people to take control? It, as that's ironic very- as it is. In the extreme, and, and I think that's what's happened to the United States. You know, it, it, people—it's been you know a number of generations in the making, and so people don't see it. But you know, the United States didn't always have this um, 
cell, like this completely broken apart family structure where, you know, you turn 18, you get out of the house and you go live somewhere else and you get a job and you support this other, this, this other family that you create that's your family and you're isolated and, you know, most people are putting their kids in, into daycare and, I mean, this is just insanity. And, but yet this is not, this is not the way it's always been in this country. There, there was a long period of time where grandparents lived in the same household with, you know, aunts and uncles. Um, you know, it wasn't always a mark of shame to live with your parents. A lot of that's changed, and as it has changed, people have become more and more financially enslaved because it's much more expensive. It's much less efficient to be on your on your own completely. You end up having to to work a lot more to to hold yourself above water. Right, and that's you know it's it really we also look at that is that the the situation with um that and the breakdown of the family unit like there was a time for example like you know if your job but you know if your boss was a jerk to you you could quit your job because your family would be there to back you up until you found another job the way it is now is that the position of the family is being taken over by the corporation that you work for because that you owe them everything you know yeah. if you, and if if you don't have a family unit to fall back on and th- this is why like for example because I have friends who are moving back in with their parents and they don't understand my financial situation because I don't have any you know they're like well well you know there's got to be something and I'm like no you don't get it <laughs> I I can't you, you this is as they're living in their mom's basement they don't understand why I'm having so much trouble financially I'm like because I don't have a mom's basement to go to my mom died of cancer 2 years ago you know I'm like there is no other option for me, and they they can't even grasp what it's like to live in a situation where they can't just do that. So, in any case, thanks again for coming on, Aaron. And um, you know, I want to do another show at some point with you, just talking about you know preparing for collapse. Um, I think we talked about that quite a bit here, and you know, I, I know that the the topic was about the petrodollar and the gold dinar, but you know, there was only so much we could say about it. And um, thanks again for coming on, and uh. You know, uh, go ahead and give the URL to your website. Uh, it's waitingforthestorm.com, and um, from there you can. There's a link to my YouTube channel, and my Facebook page, and and Twitter. And those, you know, Twitter I use just basically to put out interesting links to things that are not on my channel, the things that I'm not actually going to post myself. So I'm not I'm not one of those kind of Twitter folks that you know tell you what I'm eating for breakfast. You'll never hear that. So it's just kind of a, a way of getting new interesting links. And um, my, my um, YouTube channel is Storm Clouds Gathering, all one word. And I've really enjoyed talking to you, and I appreciate you having me on. And I do hope we can um, have this again. But I'm going to need to move my computer now because the water is... I was just going to say, I thought I heard it raining on you. <laughs> it is, but I have, I, have, I have the awning, but last time the storm came, it, it actually broke the awning. So if the wind gets, gets any higher, it could actually um, could actually get me. So, right. thanks. Goodbye, everybody. Goodbye. <laughs> All right. That was, thanks again, Aaron. Um, and thank you, everybody, for tuning in tonight. Um, it's been a great show. And, uh, you know, once again, as I was saying, folks, um, you know, seriously consider going to his YouTube channel and hitting subscribe. Um, he puts out great videos all the time. Um, you get to sit – basically, he does his videos in a fashion that is really interesting because – He's wandering around this beautiful land he has in Texas, um, you know, as he's talking to you. And it makes it feel like you're walking around on his land with you. Um, but, 
uh, with him, basically. Uh, and he talks a lot about the different issues of collapse, pre preparations, survivalism, things of that nature to be able to be able to survive when this finally happens. Um, his video about the uh, impending financial collapse is also crunches the numbers in a way that's very intelligent, and I've yet to see anybody rebuke it in a you know an equally intelligent fashion. So, thanks again, everybody, for tuning into this episode of V Radio. Please visit my website, v or v radio.org. Um, you can go to the archives, and that's something people are asking me how to download the show. After the show has been on for a certain amount of time, and after I've disconnected, then the archiving process begins. Eventually, what will happen is uh, when you go to the individual show links underneath the square like of like my picture, you'll see a download the show option. If you can't find it, go to my forums, and there's a whole section stated how to download V-Radio in V-Radio discussion. And there's a bunch of different ways to download it, but somebody was nice enough to put a screenshot there and circling what where the button for downloading the show is if you want to download it directly from Blog Talk. Otherwise, you can still uh, subscribe via iTunes, um, and you can get them that way. All of my shows are on iTunes, including the ancient ones I did when I was a libertarian. Um, I'm, I'm deleting some of those because I'm just like, man, I, I don't even want anybody to hear this anymore. <laughs> but I've kept a lot of my good interviews, like my ones with Senator Mike Gravel or uh, Brian Moore, the Socialist Party candidate for president last time around. Um you know, some of the other good interviews that I had back then are still there. Um, so, you know, somebody's saying it's too short. This is a two-hour broadcast. Um, don't forget, folks, um, tomorrow night uh, we have Ben Stewart from Chimatica, or Esoteric Agenda. Um, as I said earlier, he's going to be doing a tour in Australia. I'm working on the possibility of his band Harrisonic playing at the Zeitgeist Media Festival. I still need to get a hold of Peter or, or people about that. Um, he's also going to be talking to us. Even if you're not you know, interested in the fact that he's coming to Australia, um, he's going to be talking about his upcoming films. If any of you were fans of Chimatica and Esoteric Agenda, uh, his next film is going to be about the Free Man Movement. And then the film after that, he hasn't told me what it's going to be about yet. But um, you know, be sure to come check that out. Um, for those of you who are saying that this is still too short, <laughs> go to the damn archives. V Radio recently surpassed, I think it's like about 107 shows about Venus Project Zeitgeist Movement oriented material. So, um, and uh, so, you know, go to the archives, listen to the shows, do your homework, watch the videos in the must see TV section. I doubt all of you have done all of that, you know, um, and. Please consider, once again, a donation. You know, the bills have come recently. So, um, if, as I said earlier, if everyone who downloaded this show just don't get donated, like, somewhere between three to five bucks a month, you know, in fact, I wouldn't even need everyone to do that. Maybe a tenth of the people who download this show, you know, it, it would fill everything up and they would be good to go. So, um, just to consider all of that. And um, once again, guys, keep the, the show ideas coming. If you have an idea for topics, I can't promise that I'll do it. Um, if you have an idea for guests, I can't promise that I'll be able to get them. Um, but by all means, get in touch with me about that. Uh, Friday, uh, we were going to do it originally on um, uh, Tuesday, but he got sick. Friday, we're going to have Tyson Eberly from Zeitgeist Live. Uh, that's the I've seen it on YouTube. I guess it's a TV show about Zeitgeist. 
They've had uh, Doug Millette on a few times. He's going to come on and he's going to talk about his work. I'm still working on the MIT professor, uh, Professor Tester, the expert on geothermal energy. He's just extremely busy. He keeps saying, you know, he keeps assuring me, you know, I really want to do it. I really do. So don't give up. But he's like, I'm so busy, you know, because the guy that gives lectures and stuff like that. So, um, so that show is still on the pipe. It's just a matter of, you know, catching a time when he's got a free hour to, to be on the show. So uh, thanks again, everybody. And um, uh, I was trying to think. I'm, I'm, I know I'm forgetting something, but I'll probably remember it right as soon as I hang up. <laughs> um, but uh, thanks again, everybody, for tuning in to V Radio. Um, visit the website. Watch the Must See TV. Listen to the archives. Join the forums. Join the Facebook group, which you can't have an excuse for not finding because it's in the link section now. Um, you can add my Facebook there and my Twitter. And um, you'll also find lots of other cool stuff there, including other radio shows similar to this one. And that's about it. I'm going to leave you with some word, parting words from Jock Fresco and Roxanne Meadows. This is Roxanne Meadows. And this is Jock Fresco. And you're listening to V Radio.